I'm going to be talking about the impact of macroeconomic development and some of the complications related to trafficking and disease spread and, and also the positive sides of the mission opportunities and so on. And um, I just asked somebody to get us some, a pen to write on that whiteboard. And uh, hopefully when it comes, I'll show you some of the macro issues related to economics and, and development. But I wanted to just say a few things and get them out of the way because the rest is going to be on the presentation. Jesus talked a lot about economics. If you look at uh, the sayings of Jesus, a lot of the stuff that he said was related to money. And it's connected to all of development how we relate to, uh, relate to it, whether we love it or love it too much, and then end up with the root of all problems that we could experience as a result of that. A couple of important things to remember. People cross boundaries. And we're going to be talking about inter-country boundaries. People cross boundaries due to the push of poverty or the pull of profit. And these boundaries are not just the boundaries of countries. It could be the boundaries of decency or greed and so on. God always has gatekeepers. Remember that. God always has gatekeepers on issues that are important to him. And we'll see this again later on because he wants his children to be those gatekeepers. And if they don't step in to do what they have to, God will look elsewhere. And in my 34, 35 years in development, I have seen him repeatedly waiting and waiting and waiting. And when his children don't step in, he brings others because the issues are of concern to him, whether it be issues of environment or issues of trafficking or street children and so on. Two quick disclaimers. First one related to my accent. In the course of the lecture, you will get familiar with it, but it might be too late. <laughs> By the time you figure out what I'm saying, you haven't heard what I was trying to tell you. <laughs> so we will call on the grace of God to help you at, that, at this point before I get started. But the second thing I wanted to say was, remember one thing about God. God is consistent in who he is, but unpredictable in what he does. God is consistent in who he is, but unpredictable in what he does. So be careful when you say yes to God. And be more careful when you try to say no to God. Both dangerous places. We said yes to God to go to Cambodia for two years. He kept us there for nine years. We went when the Khmer Rouge was just moving out. And we left when Cambodia was on the, on the rise towards prosperity, openness to the gospel, things changing like we'd never dreamed it was possible. We serve a great God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's just bow our heads and commit this time into his hands. Father God, we thank you that you are here. We ask that you take complete control of all that we are talking about. Help us to see the importance of economics and not be afraid of it. But, Lord, see that the things that you are doing in and through it. And, Lord, open our hearts to be responsive to what you're telling us to do. We know that you are consistent in who you are. And, Lord, you are fully trustworthy. And so we trust you, Lord, to guide us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, I, I don't have the pen, so... Oh, it is there. Thank you. Praise the Lord. If you drew...
couple of concentric circles. That's a community. And there are issues of micro-development and a larger circle around that, which is macro-issues of development. And a larger circle around that would be issues of politics. A larger circle around that will be issues of economics. And the larger circle around that would be the supernatural, the spiritual realm. And it is important for us when we engage in development to understand macro issues. And so in the next couple of minutes, I want to walk you through this whole issue of macroeconomics. And I'm going to take you through a place called the Greater Mekong Subregion. Now, how many of you know what the GMS is? Just one lone person. Okay. The Greater Mekong subregion is Southeast Asia and consists of six countries Myanmar or Burma, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, and the southern part of China, the People's Republic of China. The two provinces are the province of Yunnan in South China and the province of Guangxi. Uh, from Cambodia, we moved to China and we lived in Guangxi, the, in the Zhuang Autonomous Region. And, uh, you know, I, I said God is unpredictable in what he does. It's a great adventure to go where he tells you to go. The last place we expected him to send us was to the United States. <laughs> that's where we are now. And that's the most traumatic part of our experience. <laughs> okay. The Greater Mekong subregion is the, is the part the GMS particularly focuses on the delta of the Mekong River. The Mekong River is 4,300 kilometers long, starts in China, and goes all the way through six countries, and then it empties out into the sea in Vietnam. It has a, a, a delta, a basin, where 320 million people work and live, live and work. So it's an amazing place. The Mekong River is called different names, Maikong, Mekong, and so on, variations of the Mekong, which is Mother Kong. And it is an amazing river. It's the only river, as far as I know, my wife still disputes this, it's the only river that flows one way for six months and in the opposite direction for six months. And that phenomenon only takes place inside Cambodia. And every Cambodian knows that. It's an amazing, amazing feature of this. The time when it changes direction is when they celebrate a festival called the Water Festival. Now, I don't want to get diverted too much into talking about that. Let's look at this, the Greater Mekong subregion. We're looking at macroeconomics. It's got connections with the gospel. The initial spread of the gospel was on all the trade routes. And it was one of those trade routes that enabled the gospel to come to my country, India. And we have many people who came to the Lord in the very first century. It's a fact that many people don't know about. And that movement moved onwards all the way to the Indus Valley. And it was called the Bhakti Movement or the Holiness Movement. But that's a different topic altogether. The GMS vision was to have a prosperous, equitable, and integrated region. These were six countries that I named just now were fighting with each other. They were at war with each other. You couldn't bring the Cambodians and the Vietnamese together. I remember I, I warned people who came there and talked about it and said, uh, this, there's a strong enmity between the Cambodians and the Vietnamese. And one of those in our, in our small group didn't realize that, and he was trying to explain the story of the Good Samaritan. And he did a substitution in his story. He said one was a Vietnamese and one was a Cambodian. 
and this, the Samaritan role was played by the Vietnamese. And the Cambodians stopped the story. They said, this can't be a true story. Don't tell it. <laughs> okay, they, they was, these countries were warring with each other. The Asian Development Bank, which has a very, very big role to play in the development part uh, role in Asia, like the World Bank, did this tremendous experiment. They said, if we can get countries that are fighting with each other under a common macroeconomic umbrella, get them to trade with each other, interact with each other socioeconomically, we can change the patterns. And that is one of the examples of a successful program. Okay? Successful at one level. We'll look at that. They, their strategy was a 3C strategy. Build connectivity between the, th the six countries. The connectivity will bring competitiveness with each other in terms of trade and dealings and so on. And then it will become a community. A community is described as a group of people that have socio-economic interaction with each other. So that's what they were aiming to do. The GMS program aimed first at bringing confidence between people. It aimed at creating relationships that were pragmatic and result-oriented. So they looked at each thing. Okay, this doesn't work. Now, we've got people, we've got six countries, one with 8 to 10, 10% GDP growth rate. One, per, one country with 2, 2.5% GDP growth rate. How do we get these to interact with each other? There was big variation. Thailand in those days had 7 to 8% growth rate. Vietnam was also about in the 7 to 8% growth rate. Cambodia was in the 4 to 5% growth rate of GDP per year. And Myanmar was at 2.5%. Laos was around 3%. So how do you get these people to interact with each other? So there was a decided amount of pragmatism that was required should be flexible, ready to make changes, and that's what they operated on. And then they decided that the building blocks they would use would be first a focus on infrastructure. So creating roads, uh, creating electricity connections, and I'll show you something fascinating later on as we look at the map and how it grows, uh, making dams, creating institutions, and so on. And then they also decided to focus on the social sector and environment because any growth, there was always the issue of environment. How will it affect environment? So they kept that in balance, the social sector and environment. And they also decided, because the six countries were different in their political structure. One was, China, one was completely all-out communist. One was... Uh, capitalistic communist, one was all-out capitalistic, one was autocratic, one was a military dictatorship. So how do you bring all of these together? So we need some policy that will have all of people talk at different levels, at the deputy director general, so that they could have a regulation, and uh, regulatory mechan mechanism for their policy framework. They decided to take nine sectors and bring this connection through nine sectors between the six countries. The first was transport, and I'll show you in a map how this grows. The second was the area of telecommunication. Again, I'll show you how this grows. The third was the area of energy. Now, the Mekong River flows flat in some places, flows wide in some places, and drops tremendously in some places. And if you know your hydrogeology, you know that when you can get the water to drop over a 16-foot gradient, then you can use it for hydroelectricity. So uh, they decided to use the area of energy uh, for connectivity. They decided to use the issue of environment. So uh, environment consciousness is also dealing with environmental program. And then these are areas where tourists want to go and visit because they're ancient cultures. So they decided to use one more sector, the, the area of tourism, and then the whole area of trade facilitation. Now, you know that 
when when you connect two countries one rich one poor goods move from the richer to the poorer but people move from the poorer to the richer so they wanted to get the straight facilitation they wanted investment they called it uh, fdi foreign direct investment so when you're patching things together you want to stitch things across as much as possible so they use these nine sectors to really bind these six countries together investment and then they discovered there was a lot of disparity between each of the countries so they decided also to invest in the human resource sector so common training programs they launched a program called the ppp the phnom penh program incidentally if you've never been to cambodia you will say phnom penh that's the way we find out <laughs> you'll say phnom penh and if you've been to cambodia the cambodians would have corrected you and told you it is phnom penh or more correctly phnom penh all right so investment in human resources so that there would be training at different sectors in each of these nine sectors the senior people would come together on the phnom penh program and be trained and then because it's a predominantly agriculture region it was the rice bowl the what was referred to at one time as indochina uh, is the, that whole area is agricultural so these nine sectors were the focus areas for binding things together what were some of the achievements mutual trust and confidence among people those that were fighting were now trading and interacting not on one but nine sectors so they started trusting each other and there was more confidence they were more careful about what they said in global fora otherwise it was very easy to stand up you know in a podium in front of people and say something and then uh, you have to meet the people you said something about that becomes complicated ownership and commitment at the highest level now i showed you this photograph here in the beginning those are all the heads i don't know if you can recognize some of those people those are all the top people the prime ministers of the countries of the six mekong region countries and holding themselves with hands like that and up like that that's a sign of solidarity so it had commitment at the highest level absolute highest level these are the guys who took decisions and they had agreed ownership and commitment at the highest political level so they decided it's going to be like one region and then they told their the people who reported to them go and see how it can be done the third area was unique institutional arrangements for cooperation so they had the mekong institute you had various institutes around in the greater mekong sub region and if you ever are in that region seek to work in that region go and find the mekong mekong institute it's in konken university so they set up these institutions to create this kind of interaction there was a major capacity building project i just mentioned to you about the phnom penh plan they had 18 loan projects completed many of them many of them ongoing and the amount was 3.9 billion dollars and you know i i'm amazed with god's sense of humor i was working first with world vision which is a 2 billion dollar a year conglomerate working in 100 countries and then he moves me to a, a, a an organization that works in six countries and puts 3.9 billion dollars and all along this time i'm working on a technology that does not re- require too much money to start doing things so like what's happening god and then he showed me he brought me to an organization that's struggling for funding and i'm in the right place okay so 18 loan projects completed and ongoing were 3.9 billion dollars this is a lot of money okay uh, we've just gone through the elections and people are talking about what 4 billion dollars spent on this election so you can imagine how intensive that is 3.9 billion was only the core funding the six countries which were partners were supposed to put in equal amount to 
to match it. So it's almost $8 billion. And then they invited foreign direct investment. So it's a huge mega project. And then there were 94 what they call technical assistant projects putting in $92 million. And these, the TA projects can be modified as you go. You can keep changing it as you go. So it's really a very powerful and intensive program. So what I'm trying to tell you is a lot of investment came into this area. So what were the achievements? Agreement to facilitate cross-border transportation of goods and people. Okay? All this time they did everything they could possibly do to prevent goods from coming in and people from going out. As a part of this program, they made these two things happen. Okay, it was almost like you're holding back a big crowd and uh, there's a celebrity there and everyone's like, hold them back and then suddenly the police say, okay, go. <laughs> so suddenly this whole group can move across both the borders. Intergovernment uh, government agreements on regional power trade were put into place. The GMS was promoted as a single tourist destination, so something like what you have, the Europass, you could get the GMS pass and travel to all six countries. There's promotion on cooperation on HIV-AIDS because NGOs were crying out and saying, if you let people move in, there'll be disease and so on, so they, they had a policy on that. They developed a strategy for in the environmental framework and also pro, uh, produced a GMS atlas of the environment. So they, they thought they covered all bases in this, this whole approach. And they fairly well achieved the strategy, which was connectivity, competitiveness, and community. Okay? Remember, this is the hallmark of a community. They have social economic interaction with each other. You can draw a line, a circle around a group of people having socioeconomic interaction with each other. That's a community. Okay. Now let's see what happened. I want you to look at this map very carefully. I want to explain the map. This is in 1992. That's the Greater Mekong subregion. Okay? And you have the different countries. You have Myanmar over here, the yellow. You have Thailand, the green. You have Laos, the People's Democratic Republic of Laos. This is here. This is Cambodia. That's the Mekong River. And the reason why the Mekong changes direction after six months is there's a connection here to the Tonle Sap in Simria. So as it, as it floods, this fills up. And when the river goes down in level, the rains are over, this empties out, so it sends the water in the opposite direction. That's why the river goes in the opposite direction six months. And then you have Vietnam, the sickle-shaped country that's all around this area. Now the green here is the, the telecommunication backbone. That's not just a single wire. It's a whole range of communication set up, the green. The red is the upgraded and all-weather roads. Okay, do you know what an all-weather road is? If you live in a developing country, that's maybe five months of the year. You can't go on that road. So that's not an all-weather road. An all-weather road is... Come rain or sunshine, you can go on it for the whole year. Okay, so those are the all-weather roads. And this is the electricity connection, the grid. There are other electricity connections, but as a part of the GMS program, this is where things... This is where it stood in 1992. What do you see? Okay, so Thailand... Why do you suppose Thailand was the smartest in this whole lot? They were very strongly influenced by capitalistic thinking. Do you remember who the prime minister was at that time? Shinabhadra Thaksin. Okay, we worked very closely with his office. 
And Thaksin started off as uh, just as a constable. And his duty was always to be on the outside waiting. You know, VIPs are in a party, so they would be doing security outside. And he kept asking himself, why am I outside and they inside? And he would ask people, why? And I said, because they understand economics, you don't. So he started studying about economics, and he started investing his savings. And in a short time, he became the biggest businessman in, in Thailand. Okay? And then he saw that his business cannot survive unless he's got his hands on politics. And so he entered into politics, and he became a prime minister. And he came for a meeting in UN and he got ousted during that time the country was taken over and he couldn't go back. That's a different story. So anyway, he saw that for his country to develop and grow, they need economic development. So they were the first ones to grab the programs that were available. So that was 1992. Let's go from 1992 to 2004. Those are the first extension roads. What do you see there? Okay. Now, they, they call this the east-west and the north-south corridors. And where, who do you see taking advantage of that? Thailand, Thailand again. And? China. China, yes. Who else? Okay. And who's taken least advantage? Myanmar. Myanmar. Okay, so that was just the all-weather roads. Now, I'm talking six-lane traffic in places where you didn't know there was a road. You were going, and then, you know, why are we driving through a rice field? I would ask my staff sometimes. I said, Bong, which means older brother. That is the road. Okay, now, suddenly in those places, they have six-lane traffic, really good roads. Electricity. What do you see happening here? Who's taking advantage? And Laos is producing the, the energy. Who's getting the advantage? Thailand and Vietnam. And the communication network. Again, do you see some gaps here? Okay. What happened to Myanmar? Okay, they resisted. Why? The military. the military government. It takes a long time for them. You know, this is from outside. We have to decide whether this will really benefit us or not. Okay, let's go from 2004 to 2012. This was created in 2008. And the plan was in 2012, this is what should happen. Do you see that? In case you missed it, let me do that again. <laughs> do you see that? Now, what does that remind you? Many of you are surgeons. Many of you are medical doctors. What does it remind you? It's like the blood flow. Okay? Now, if that was a tumor, would you be worried? <laughs> You'd be very worried. Because it's growing fast, and it's got its own blood supply. And to find a way to cut its blood supply. And its growth. Okay? So, remember what I said about a community. A community is one that has socio-economic connections. And so now, do you see this happening? This whole region is becoming like one big community. That's what's their dream. The GMS community, they called it. And it, it's becoming like one community. And what happens within a community then is, we'll talk about that. Let me, let me finish this. I'm, I'm running ahead. Let's look at the electricity grid. What happened? They had a plan. When the bank has a plan, it has deadlines. And then when you don't use it, then they've got underspent money, <coughs> unacquired funds. So they decided at this stage, Use it or lose it. So who used it? Vietnam. 
Vietnam had two parallel lines right across from the top to the bottom. And who missed out? And Cambodia also missed out. And then what happened was Vietnam was getting this electricity and selling it to Cambodia. Thailand was getting that electricity and selling it to Cambodia. And by the time they woke up to accept it, it was too late. And they said, we said, use it or lose it. Now you lost it. And that's when Cambodia started waking up and they grew with their electricity, their roads and their communication network. Okay? Now these are landlines. They don't, these are, most of it, a lot of it was fiber optic cable. Stuff that we in some places don't have in the United States. Okay? In some of these countries, you can use cell phones, you can use the internet in amazing capacity, speeds of 15 megabytes per second. It's just amazing. So you see now this connectivity has taken place. These have become like highways of movement, not only across from here to here, but around Simreap on the other side. So places which were quiet villages where nobody went in suddenly are economic corridors. They actually call them economic corridors. Growth started plaguing. People started moving. People started moving out of their countries and they started moving towards those roads. Major upheaval, major changes, changes that nobody had ever expected. What were some of these impacts? Let's run through them. How are we doing for time? 15 minutes left. Who's the timekeeper? Can someone hide them somewhere? Okay. Enhancing competitiveness. 15 minutes. Okay. Shoot me after that. Others I won't shut up. This is something I love. Dramatic reduction in travel time. Roads on which you travel at 15 kilometers, 20 kilometers per hour, now capable of handling traffic at 100 kilometers per hour. So some of the struggles were one goes on the left side, one goes on the right side. And if you go to Laos, you know, by the evening, the road becomes the place where everyone sits and, and just talks. So, yeah, so better when you take a turn, blow your horn, keep the lights on, and then you suddenly see people running off the road. So dramatic re reduction in that. They launched various programs like breakfast in Thailand, lunch in Laos, dinner in Vietnam, you know, so you could do this sort of thing. Uh, they removed non-tariff barriers. Custom facilitation was brought in. Enabling policy environment for private investments. Provisions for efficient utility services, power, telecommunications, and so on. In the past, you paid through your nose. If you thought uh, Georgia Power, or we, we, we get power from Georgia Power, I don't know where you get it, from Kentucky Power, is expensive. You go and see what the costs are in those countries, paying very, very high rates. The contiguous location because of community, achievements of greater connectivity and improved competitiveness, potential gains from integrated markets and production processes. They were jointly addressing issues that transcended borders. Commodities were moving. They created what they called border economic zones so that they had a different rule altogether that was designed to facilitate trade. But what started happening, a lot of contraband stuff started flowing across. A lot of contaminated food, which was not suitable in one country, went to the other country, especially to the poorer country. Good drugs that were contraband, not, not suitable, expiry date stuff started going to other countries. Narcotics started moving. Outsourced production. People were... You could actually fly to Thailand. It was very expensive to play golf in Thailand. So they actually outsourced places in Laos where there were golf courses made. So you could go across there. You had places where tapioca was grown in a poorer country to supply it to a richer country. You're talking about outsourcing as an issue. It was there. It was visible. You could see that. People started moving. And I want to take a few minutes just to explain this. 
there are four levels. When you have a community interacting with each other socioeconomically, they become four types of categories. RFSA 1, the people who have what they need and more than what they need. RFSA 2, people who have enough but just enough. RFSA 3, that have for about nine months or ten months enough, but for two months they really struggle. RFSA 4, struggle throughout the year. Now what this did was for RFSA 1 and 2, they grew exponentially. Some of them, their income increased a hundred times, not a hundred percent, a hundred times. They became millionaires overnight. People who had land on the border, they sold it and the, the price is shot from like $10 to $5,000. It was just tremendous. Some of them grew. So RFSA 1 and 2 grew tremendously. RFSA 3 and 4 suffered tremendously. They were the ones that were trafficked. They were the ones that were engaged in, in the illegal trade. It was controlled by RFSA 1, but the people who carried the contraband groups were 3 and 4. They would get caught. They would get beaten. They would lose all their property. So it became a nightmare uninterrupted. So if you write to me, I'll send you this. We wrote an article just, just, just going around and looking at it. We met with people. We sat with them. We cried with them because when they shared their heart, it was heartbreaking. How their daughters were trafficked, how they were trafficked, how they lived uh, illegal migrants in another country, eight months, ten months. They had to hide. They were not supposed to be present there. And then the guy who brought them there would report to the police that there's an illegal migrant here. And they'd been working 10 months hoping that their money was stored. And then they were thrown back without any money. And the family back home is depending on what this person could bring. So there were some tales of horror, especially for the third and the fourth. Another interesting thing was RFSA 1 and uh, 1 became investors in their own country, on the borders, across the borders. RFSA 2 became managers within their country on the borders across the borders. RFSA 3 became the skill, uh, the skilled service providers, the semi-skilled providers. RFSA 4 became the unskilled service providers. And these were the ones that were the most exploited. Exploited, told that they were being given domestic servant job somewhere in Bangkok, and they ended up in brothels. Trafficking. Almost 1.2 million people from Myanmar and Thailand. A lot of them illegally. In Laos, Laos at least the language is the same, so it, they cross across. But Myanmar, they don't even know the language, so it's very easy for them to be caught. And then when you have any communication, HIV AIDS is a major problem. The, all the communication literature, because the, the Thais would not make diagrams, they would write it, and the, the Myanmarese could not read it. So they were in a place, a high risk. They didn't know what to do. And many of them got infected. We saw in one case uh, where a whole bunch of uh, Myanmarese women had gone into Thailand. They all tested positive. As soon as they tested positive for HIV, they were brought and kept in the border near the Mekong River on this side of the Mekong, just opposite where Myanmar was. And then they saw nothing happened, so the Thai government then took them and put them across the border in, into Myanmar and then publicized everywhere that this is, this is what has happened to these people. Look at them, they're HIV, and the government is not doing anything. So what did the, what did the Myanmarese government do? They took all the women and send them back to their hometowns and force the families to take care of them, give them food and look after them. And for a period, they improved their health. And then they took on this, the only profession they knew. And so Myanmar, HIV spread like wildfire, all inside the country. I'll read the rest of this because my time's running out. Uh, 
many migrated because they had no other options. There were street children all over the place. All along the, the roads you could find uh, street children. If you took a map and looked at where four roads or more crossed, drew a circle, you're sure to find street kids there. You're sure to find illegal migrants in those places. Uh, homelessness and refugees grew. Lots of IDPs, a lot of migrants, a lot of commercial sex providers. Disease spread, HIV-AIDS infection. I just gave you the example. Bird flu across the border. SARS was a big issue. Uh, other contagious diseases. But let's look at the missionary opportunities. And then I'll close with a short story of something that gives hope. Mission opportunities like never before. Across borders were people from different countries because there were investors coming in, there were managers coming in, there were service, skilled service providers and unskilled service providers in all the countries from all these regions. So you really, if you wanted to do intercultural evangelism, you didn't have to cross the border. They were right there in your border. Ethnic groups where they had never been before could be found. Cross-cultural opportunities within countries. Openness to the gospel like never before. Holistic missionary opportunities like never before. I told you about gatekeepers. God has his gatekeepers. Whether it's issues of environment, whether it's issues of street children, whether it's issues of uh, internally displaced people, God has his gatekeepers. And he's looking for his children to step in and do what is necessary. And if they don't, God will raise other gatekeepers. And, you know, you have to go to those countries and see some of those who are working are not Christians. God is calling for Christians to be there. But sometimes we are more occupied with wanting to evangelize than to engage holistically, which is what Christ did. He spoke to the body and the soul. People are not soulless bodies or bodiless souls. They are together and they need a holistic response. If his people don't respond, God will raise others. Are we ready? A similar opportunity is right here in the U.S. Like never before, you have immigrants living right here. There are there's a large uh, community of Nepalis living here, Hindus. They brought their culture and they live here. And this church is reaching out to some of those. There may be many in your own area, wherever you are based. But here's an opportunity that's growing. I want to close with a short story. How much? Do I have a, two minutes more? Oh, okay. minutes. oh, I've got five minutes. Okay. <laughs> so we had, we when we were in Cambodia, we... We were like parents because the generation that got killed during the Khmer Rouge was the same generation as my wife and I. So we were like Apuk Madai for many people. Apuk means father and Madai means mother. And my wife was initially offended because some who were older than her were calling her Madai. But I said, you know, it's, it's a mark of respect. It's not that they think you're older than them, but they're just respecting you. So we had a lot of these people's come to our place, there were times we'd have 40 people in our small group, which was completely negating the concept of a small group. <laughs> it was like, I'm sorry, if you don't mind, I brought two of my friends, and then my friend has also brought another two friends, and then before we know it, you know, we're trying to share this meal, which was made for 14 people with, two, you know, 40 people and so on. But lots of people, and we were amazed at the different types of people God was bringing. Now, you have different people come in, uh, it becomes a struggle. So then, you, you know, communication is a problem because there's some different ethnic groups that come in. And we found there was a lady from Vietnam who came in. And I asked my wife, Vimla, does, does she understand what we're talking about? Because you, you'd suddenly switch into a different mode of speaking. You hear what I say? You know, that kind of thing. And then it, it becomes a little, you know distracting for those who follow and then you're trying to go at a different pace, you're trying not to say anything profound in the discussion and some of those issues were profound when you're discussing 
And then she said, don't worry, she doesn't understand Cambodian or English. But why does she come? You know, but she comes because she, she wants the warmth of a Christian home. And so we just included her and she would, you know, we talk to you afterwards, you know, we tell her, you know, and then she'd stay behind and we'd talk and she'd say, yes, yes, yes. And she didn't understand a word, you know, didn't understand a word of all of this. And she was, she'd come across, we knew there was some story. In Cambodia, you never asked anybody their story till they told you. And I had warned my wife about that, but she still asked. You know, she was talking to someone, do you have children? And then they went into this whole story of how their whole family was killed in front of them. And then I came back into the room and I see this lady and Vimla both holding each other and crying. And I said, what happened? She said, I did what you told me not to do. <laughs> I asked her about her family. Anyway, so we had this and then we were just, you know, we never asked her where she came from, what happened. And then we discovered, because we found someone who knew Vietnamese also, and who was Vietnamese and English, and so she started talking with her. And we'd known this lady for two or three years. And she'd come regularly. She would sit, she'd be there before everyone, leave after everyone, and she would shake her head, and she would smile. She didn't understand most of what was discussed. And then we went, but we knew she must have an incredible story. And she said, when she came, there was a group of Vietnamese women who were commercial sex providers. I don't call them commercial sex workers. They, they didn't choose to work like that. They were trafficked out. They came in, and they were a group. And she was reaching out to them. And she was bringing people to the Lord. She had come to know the Lord. She had... She was so full of gratitude in the one language she knew. Laced with love, she reached out to these people and she was bringing them to the Lord. And then when we came back from that trip with her, my wife and I prayed, Lord, open our eyes that we might see what you are doing. And not start praying and saying, stop this, Lord, stop this economic development. Lord, stop this movement of people because the Lord is in control. And is it, it is like he's saying, are you able to see what I am doing? Are you able to see what I am doing? We were reaching out to our landlord. They were Chinese. The two of them knew Cambodian very well and they knew Chinese very well and they didn't know any other language. And we just clicked because they were our age group. So their son was the translator for us. And he would translate and then he would get called away to do something and so we're just sitting in <laughs> and you know with my Chinese Nyao Ma and then with my full range of Khmer, with, which was quite a bit, but you know, it, it's beyond, not beyond basic conversation. And then we're looking at it, <laughs> smiling at each other. And we, we said, how do we reach these people? We have such close access. How do we reach these people? How do we reach these people? And we, we, we took them to church. They were not sure how to be in a church. They would reach out to see somebody else. Hey, Sunbat, Soksabai. And say, shh, this is a church. You can't do that. And the pastor's like, what, what was that? Did someone say something? So is it, you know, we got to give up. And then we left, we left Cambodia and we were really sad. We couldn't connect. And then we had to go back to Cambodia for something. The first thing we did was connect with this family. And then the family started talking. And then uh, they said, do you know Sakri, our little daughter? She is in, in the U.S. So he said, where in U.S.? She said, some place called Decatur. And that's where we stay. All right. So we got back and we connected. And then you know what we found out? They had sent their daughter to live with a family, Cambodian uh, Buddhist family. The son... The plan was the son would marry the daughter. Okay, this happens. You plan and, you know, when they were younger and then when they grow up, they will. And they did. They fell in love with each other. 
But before they did, he became a Christian. And he told her, if you want to marry me, you also must know about Christ. And he led her to the Lord. These two have become Christians and we meet them. And we are thinking in our hearts, such lovely people, somewhere somebody has to reach them with the gospel. And God was telling my wife and I something and that, that season of teaching was, do you see what I am doing? Do you see what I am doing? And so there was this new church which was launched, a new campus. We go to Andy Stanley's church. So in Gwyneth County, I've been told my time's up. I'll just take another one minute. And the <laughs> Gwyneth County church was just being launched. It was Easter. And they were going to have this special service starting with Easter. And we were standing and we told Sokri and her husband to join us. His name is Tin. We kept two places. And we were waiting and they didn't turn up. And then, uh, so my wife went and she said, I, I told the gatekeeper to, to find them and bring them here. So I was wondering, how are you going to get them there? She said, if you see two Chinese people, Chinese looking people looking here and there, drag them and bring them to us. <laughs> so we're standing there and I'm thinking, Lord, you've been telling me, do you see what I'm doing? Do you see what I'm doing? And I turned and they had come. And I couldn't control myself. The Lord is at work. He has gone before you. He has prepared the way. The good works that you need to do, He has prepared. And He is with you to do what He wants. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, enable us to see what we haven't seen so far. Enable us to see what you are doing around us. And Lord, through all of the development and all of the struggles, the movements that are being created, open our eyes and Lord, enable us to say, Lord, here am I. Take me and use me for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.